Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. We've got another solo episode today. It's just me. From next week, I've got actually tons of interviews lined up for next week. So we'll be back to the interview format of the podcast from then. But for today, it's just me again. And there's kind of three different sections of the podcast today. I'm going to start off with a little story, which is also a bit of a game. So I'm not going to tell you who the story is about, and you're going to have to try and guess it as it goes along. But it's a really interesting story about somebody who found success in meaning in their life and in their career much later on than what most of us typically expect or want for our own lives. Then I'm going to talk about some things that honestly I'm really personally interested in, which is the science of well-being, the science of happiness. So there's this wonderful course um, that's run by Yale and it's available for free online called The Science of Wellbeing by this woman called Lori Santos. And basically it breaks down it uses a lot of the research and data that we have in terms of what makes people happy to try and give us frameworks and help us make decisions around our own life. So it's really interesting. I break down a lot of the psychological, um, both behavioral and social reasons that we often make decisions that don't lead us to the types of situations or lives that would actually make us happy and what we can do to try and get over some of those. So if you've any interest in that kind of area of like psychology and behavioral psychology, it's um I think that would be an interesting section. And then I've got a bit of a surprise section at the end, which is something very, very different. But um yeah, give it a listen and let me know what you think. As always, follow me on the old socials. So LinkedIn, get me at Steve Duke, um just my personal account. And then on Instagram, it's at two roads pod that's t-w-o uh roads pod but apart from that let's get into the show shout out to all the motherfuckers that don't give a fuck about us now we here all right so i'm going to tell you a little story about a very interesting character and i'm not going to tell you who it is and it's a bit of a game so see how long it takes you to guess and if not, then, you know, by the end, you'll definitely know, I'll tell you. So on the 21st of December, 1948, in Washington, D.C., a little boy was born. Now, he spent his years growing up in Tennessee, where he largely was without his father. Uh, in fact, he only ever met his father twice in his whole lifetime, and his father ended up passing away from alcoholism. He was raised primarily by his mother. And as a kid, he actually struggled with a really bad stutter. When he finished school, he went to college in Atlanta, Georgia, and started to get very involved in the civil rights movement, which was happening at the time. In 1969, himself and some other students got into a bit of an incident where they held members of the Morehouse College Board of the Trustees hostage, demanding reforms in their school curriculum and how the school was governed. And although the college actually decided to agree to the changes, this young man was charged with and convicted of unlawful confinement, which meant that he was actually suspended from his university for two years. So during this suspension, he needed a job. And so he went and he worked as a, a social worker in Los Angeles. And it was around this time that he was starting to get interested in acting. And so a few years passed He's now in his 30s. He moved to New York to try and pursue this career in acting, but really had nothing to his name. It didn't really have many roles to speak of, certainly no 
you know, financial success or anything like that. So he moved to New York to, to try and make it, but he really wasn't having much luck. He worked in a couple of stage productions and took parts in, you know, some small films and TV, where was, you know, a little bit of like here and there opportunities, but never anything big. He actually, you know, to provide for himself, he was working at the Manhattan Plaza as a security guard. He then got a couple of breaks in small films, but again, still nothing, nothing major, nothing, nothing that was at the level of what he was hoping he could do for himself. Next, he sadly developed some pretty severe addictions to alcohol and to drugs. He overdosed multiple times on heroin and then decided to switch to cocaine. And after battling with this addiction for several years, at the age of 40, he ended up in rehab. So he's now 40. He's still, you know, hoping to pursue a career in acting, but he's in rehab. He has really not many successes to his name and said no real financial success and kind of struggling to know where to go next. So then he got out of rehab and he got a call from Spike Lee and he was offered a role in the film Jungle Fever. And the role was actually about playing a man who was addicted to crack, which was eerily reflective of what his own real life struggle had been over the past few years. And this was his first real break. He actually won awards for the role that he played in this film. And he started to make it in this industry that he'd wanted to be in for so long. Then a few years later, he's aged 46 now, and he got a call from Quentin Tarantino. So Tarantino was working on this new film and he'd written a character specifically for him. I'm wondering if you've got figured out who the person is yet. If not, you're going to know now. The film was Pulp Fiction and the role was Jules Winfield. And of course, the person I'm talking about is Samuel L. Jackson. So at 46, it was he was 46 years old before he landed this role that you know, so many people know him for, and the one that was really his big break into this industry. And after Pulp Fiction, his career just took off. He had been struggling for so long. He was a drug addict. He had been struggling just to make ends meet, but now he found himself in the Hollywood limelight. And since 46, he's now well into his seventies. Since 46, he has starred in dozens of the biggest and best films that have been released over the past couple of decades. He's one of the top three highest grossing actors of all time. In fact, I was looking at some estimates there that a lot of people suggest that he is maybe the highest grossing actor of all time. And I love this story. I love hearing stories about different people who found their calling or who made it at later stages of their lives, because it's so easy for us to put pressure on ourselves to you know, if I remember when I was a kid, I said, if I wasn't going to be, if I wasn't a millionaire by the time I was 18, I wasn't interested. Um, now that didn't happen, obviously, but we put these like, it's very easy for us to put these kind of timelines on our own success, but it takes time for us to figure out what we want to do. And it takes time for us to persevere and to actually make it in that industry. And I don't mean to make it in terms of we all have to go and be millionaires or have massive success, but whatever it is that we're pursuing, it can often take time. We don't have to have it done by the time we're 18. 
28, 38, 48. It really doesn't matter. And I love hearing stories like this, like the one of Samuel L. Jackson and so many other people. If you Google them, you'll see there's so many people who really, it was only later in their lives that they found what it was that gave them meaning, that gave them purpose and that they got satisfaction from. So a few years ago, I did this online course by Yale called The Science of Wellbeing. And it's run by this woman called Laurie Santos. And the whole idea of it is that they use all the research and data and evidence that exists on what people report <laughs> makes them have and live a happy life to try and like provide some guidance for what that would mean for you know the students who are doing the course to help them make better decisions around what would give them a meaningful and a happy life. So I'm obviously a bit of a nerd about all these things. And I kind of want, like when I heard about this thing, it was like the science of well-being, like the kind of formula for living a happy life. I'm like, oh, that's, that sounds amazing. I definitely want to go and do that. I want to learn all about it. And so I did the course. Um, turns out it doesn't give you, you know, a formula for perfect life, um, which I now realize is completely fair and completely realistic. I don't believe that, you know, that kind of a thing exists. Um, but what it does do is gives us some really interesting frameworks in terms of how we can think about making decisions that increase the likelihood that we would have a good life, that we will be able to make decisions that in the future lead us to times where we're actually having more fun, we're finding more meaning, we're more content, whatever that really is. And so today I was thinking back on this course and a lot of the things that I learned from it, and I wanted to share some of them with you because they're really interesting. They, it covers a lot of the topics like um, social psychology and behavioral psychology and why we sometimes make choices that lead us to things that don't make us happy and then how we can combat those so that we can make better choices. And so it's very, very well thought through and I wanted to run through some of the things I found most interesting and learned about during that course. So to start off the course, one interesting thing that you learn straight away is about what determines how happy we are. And so if you can imagine a pie chart, it's broken into three sections. And so the first section is genetics. So our genes actually determine how happy we can be during our life. And it contributes about half, about 50% to our happiness levels throughout our life. And so, you know, sometimes I think that's a bit of a, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Essentially, it just it is what it is. Right now, anyway, we can't change our genes. So whatever we have, that's what it's going to be. And it's going to contribute about 50% of our happiness. Then the next part of the pie chart, which accounts for 10%, is what happens to us in our life. So the different life events that could occur um, you know, throughout all the time that we're here on the earth. And it's actually interesting. It only contributes 10%, which is really not that much at all. Because we often think about all the things that could happen, either good or bad, and how much of an impact that would have. But really, it's not that much. And so you've got 40% left of this pie chart. And that's down to what we do, the decisions that we make, and the actions that we take throughout our life. And so really, this is the area that we can do something about, that we can control, this 40% of the pie chart. And we should be thinking about, well, what can we do within this 40% to increase the likelihood that we'll you know, have a, have a good life? And the only thing is that there's a bit of a problem. The problem is that our mind is actually not very good at making choices that will lead to our future happiness. In fact, our minds lie to us. 
and as Laurie Santos calls it during the course, she calls it miswanting. Essentially, our minds often want things that won't actually make us happy. We're very, very poor predictors of what will make us happy in the future. So for example, we might think, oh, that getting a promotion at work will make us happier because you know we'll have more prestige, we'll get a pay rise, um, whatever else comes with that, more responsibility. But often what happens is that after that initial joy subsides, we find that the additional stress with the longer work hours, less free time, whatever it is that comes with the promotion actually decreases our overall level of happiness. So our minds often miswant. They lie to us about what we think will make us happy. And that obviously impacts our ability to make decisions in a good way. And so that raises the question, like, well, why do we miswant? And the answer is that unfortunately, our brains didn't evolve to make us happy. And that's an unfortunate reality, but it's true. Instead, what they evolved to do was to keep us alive and to help us to reproduce. And our brains are actually pretty good at that. But again, they haven't been, they haven't evolved to be able to make decisions that actually ultimately lead to us, um, you know, living a good life. So our intuitions in these things are often very wrong. And so there's a few ways that, there's a few things that kind of cause us to miswant. And if we are aware of those, then maybe we can start to actually see them when they crop up in our own decision-making and take actions to, uh, to combat them. And so that we can make, be able to make better decisions and ones that will actually um, lead us to things that will, will make us happy. So what are those things? What are the things that cause us to miswant? So the first one is this really interesting concept called mimetic desire. So you may have heard of this. It's kind of got super popular over the last few years through this book called Wanting. And essentially what it means is that our minds desire what the people around us desire. That's what mimetic desire is. So it's a concept in social psychology, and it's based on the work of a guy called René Girard that suggests that human desires, they're not isolated or individual, but they're actually derived from others, the people around us. So in other words, we often desire things because other people desire them. And so that leads us to imitate or to mimic their desires. And there's a great book called Wanting, if you want to read more about this. And so the question is, well, why do we do this? Why why do we kind of experience mimetic desire? Why do we end up wanting what the other people around us want? And ultimately, the, the idea here is that it's thought to exist because humans are inherently incredibly social creatures, and that's how we evolved. And so we have a very strong tendency to mirror or imitate others. We want to fit in. As we were evolving over thousands and thousands of years, we were more likely to survive if we were part of the group. Right. If we kind of looked like everybody else, felt like everybody else, got on part of the group. If you were in the tribe, there's a good chance you survived. If you were on the outskirts of the tribe, if you got kicked out of the tribe, you probably weren't going to make it too far. And so our brains de developed to actually want a lot of the things that the people around us want. So that was fine. You know, when we were hunter-gatherers and going around and we had to live in tribes just to be able to survive. But, you know, we're a bit past that now. So we don't actually need to want the same things as all of the people around us just to not get kicked out of our tribe and to not die. So it has an impact on us. And the impact is that it's, it's this big driver of miswanting. So we end up desiring and pursuing things that 
ultimately won't make us happy, but we want them because the people around us want them. And it's very natural, right? This, this happens in a way that we're often not very aware of. And a lot of our desires are, and that's kind of think the tricky thing about it is that a lot of the times it's not easy to say, oh, we want that thing. We want that job or we want to go on that holiday. We want that car because the people around us want it. It's not easy to always be able to identify that. But it very often happens. I remember, you know, when I was in university, I ended up wanting the jobs that the people around me wanted. Um, when I was, I don't know, looking at buying a car, I kind of think that I probably wanted the cars that I saw around the place that I lived. Um, you know, I live in Bondi in Sydney now where everybody wants to be fit and healthy. And so I now want to be fit and healthy. Whereas, you know, when I lived in Dublin, maybe I didn't really want that that much. I wanted other things. And so it definitely impacts what we, what we desire and our decision-making around that. And so then the question is, well, what can you actually do about it? And I was thinking about this earlier, and I think it boils down to a couple of things. So the first one is, this is a pretty strong force in our decision-making. So rather than fighting it, we can actually look to harness it. So we can, if we can curate the people that we hang around and the influences that they create on us through mimetic desire, then we can actually harness mimetic desire for good. For example, if I know that personally, what I really want outside of mimetic desire is, you know, to be, to be a really healthy, healthy person. Let's just say that's an example. If I curate my environment, the people in it, that to a point where they are people who want to live healthy lives, then I'm, that's going to reinforce my desire to want to live a healthy life, right? So I'm going to harness that paramimetic desire to drive my own behavior. Now, that's not always possible. And there's things that you might know that you want in your own life, you truly want, that you can't just create your environment in a way that's going to allow you to harness this idea of mimetic desire for good. So what can you do then? So I think there's a couple of things. So the first one is just be aware of it, um, especially through social media. Um, that's, you know, I'm not going to harp on about this because everybody talks about it, but when you're on social media and you see what other people are doing, what they're wanting, it's very easy to start to desire those things as well. And I don't know how much we can combat it, but just being aware of it, but I think it does help a little bit. You can start to say, oh, wait, I actually just want this thing because everybody else around me wants it, or do I really, really want it? And that brings me on to the second thing, which is trying to get to an idea of what you do really want to yourself, right? So I think that's, it's a tough question. I don't and don't have all the answers for it. And, you know, I don't, I hate kind of preaching about these kind of things. That's not at all my intention, but it's more like, I think that it is helpful to develop a strong self-identity and assurance around what you, who you are and what you want. Because if you have that in yourself, then it's very, it's easier to kind of resist desires that are created by the people that you're hanging around with. And I think the last one then is just finding ways to reset. So finding ways to kind of break out of whether it's the social circle or the social media circle that you're in and say, actually, you know, I've been hanging around with, I've been influenced by a lot of the same people for a very long time. I'm going to, you know, find a way to break away from that, to reset it and to reset some of the mimetic desires that might come with that. So that's this kind of concept of mimetic desire. That's the first thing that drives a lot of our miswanting. And if we're aware of it and we kind of think about it, 
we might be able to make decisions in a bit of a different way. So the second thing is that our minds don't deal in absolutes. They deal with reference points. So what does that mean? So I think the best way to describe this is with a story. So there's this picture from the 2008 Olympics, and it was after the individual medley swimming race, where there was three men standing up on the podium. So, you know, we got first, second, and third, gold, silver, bronze. So up on the top of the podium with the gold medal around his neck was Michael Phelps. And you can imagine what he looked like. He was beaming, super, super happy. Then in second, there was this guy called Laszlo Che. And he did not look happy at all. He has a silver medal around his neck, but he actually looks pretty devastated. And then third was Ryan Lochte. And he was as happy as Michael Phelps was. He looked absolutely delighted with his bronze medal. And so kind of the question here is like, what's going on with each of these people, right? Clearly Michael Phelps had won, he got gold, he was the best. So from an absolute and a relative state of mind, he should be happy. But then what was going on with the other two? So the interesting one was with the guy who came second, the guy who got the silver. If you were to look at from an absolute frame, what should his level of happiness be? It should be super high. This guy had just proved that he was the second fastest swimmer in the entire world for this race that he had just swam in. He should be absolutely delighted. But actually, our brains tend really not to work in absolutes. What they work is in is relative terms. And so for a guy who's just come second, as unfortunate as it is, the relative point that he's comparing himself to is gold. And so, and gold was ahead of him. And so actually he probably, he, he would have felt very, very disappointed at that point. Now, what's interesting is when we go down to Ryan Lochte, who got the bronze medal, and he's sitting up there with a big smile on his face, from an absolute perspective, he actually still did super well. He's still the third fastest swimmer in the world, but he's still behind the dude Laszlo who came in second. So on an absolute scale, he actually should be sadder than Laszlo was, but he's not, he's standing up there smiling. And the whole idea is that if you come third, who are you comparing yourself to? You're comparing yourself to the guy who came in fourth. He didn't get a medal and he didn't get on the podium at all. And so I think this kind of explains, hopefully explains how our minds deal in relative terms, in terms of how we compare to reference points as opposed to absolutes. And so this matters because we often stop making decisions based on what we actually need from an absolute perspective, but rather how that compares to some other reference point, either a reference point in our own lives and our past selves or other people. So an example here might be around your salary. So if you were to sit down and say, actually, how much money do I need to you know, live a happy life, whatever it is, you might come up with a number. Now, if you you could say, if you were on a number less than that, let's just say that number is, I don't know, 60,000. And today you're on 40,000 and somebody comes along and offers you the 60,000. You're happy because one, you got what you needed from an absolute perspective, but also even on a, a relative scale, you're now earning way more than you were previously. But if you had already been on 70,000 and I was offering you 60,000, obviously you're going to be disappointed. Even though if you knew 
actually, you know what? All I need in life is 60,000 to be happy. That's it. Covers all my bills, allows me to do whatever I want to do. Relatively speaking, you're going to be disappointed. And obviously this sounds kind of obvious and kind of like natural, but it's interesting when our brains, uh, to understand that this is how our brains often work. We don't deal in absolutes. We deal with reference points and that often impacts our decision-making. The second thing is that, or the third thing actually, after kind of this concept of mimetic desire and the fact that our minds don't deal in absolutes is that our minds adapt. So our minds are built to get used to stuff. Whether that's negative or positive, once the event happens very quickly, once the change happens very quickly, our minds get used to that new level, whether it's positive or negative. So a great way to explain this one is through the concept of hedonic adaptation. So hedonic adaptation is the process of becoming accustomed to a positive or negative stimulus, such that the emotional effects of the stimulus are attenuated over time. So that's the, you know, the scientific definition of it. Basically, it means that if something good happens to you, you get used to it and you stop valuing it as much as you did when you first got it. So an example might be, I'll come back to maybe the, your new, a new phone, right? So the first time you get a new phone and you, you bring it home and you take it out of the box, it just feels amazing. It's so fast. Oh, the camera is incredible. You're taking photos of absolutely everything and showing everybody how good the camera is. And it just feels amazing. And you're minding it with your life. You've got like three covers on it, trying to protect it. And then six months later, you really don't care for it that much anymore. Um, it doesn't It doesn't bring you the same level of happiness that it did on that first day. And you probably treat it accordingly as well. And there's studies to support this as well. So they looked at both people who've won the lottery and then people who became paralyzed. And essentially, when both of those things happen, the people who won the lottery, their happiness spikes immediately. And the people who are par paralyzed, um, they become very sad. But after a year, their happiness in both of those groups had returned to where it was before the event. So for better or for worse, we get used to things, right? Now, what can we do about that? I think one really interesting thing is about hedonic resets. So if you've got something that, you know, brought you joy and that you know you should value, but you don't, getting a break from it for a little while is really really good because then when you get it back you appreciate it so much more so for me i know whenever i leave um my apartment in in sydney if i'm traveling home or whatever else like last year i was home for a few months and then when i get back to sydney i'm like oh my god i love this place i've forgotten how much i loved it it's really amazing and just you know going to the coffee shop is like an amazing experience for me when i just get back after being away for a few months but before I went away, I wasn't even thinking about it. I wasn't appreciating it. And so that ability to kind of like take away the thing maybe for a little while and then get it back is a good way to reset. And then the fourth thing, which kind of causes us to miss want, which is related to the fact that our minds adapt, is that we don't realize that our minds adapt. So if we were able to say, oh, I know that I am going to you know, experience hedonic adaptation for this new phone and that um, I'll enjoy it for, you know, a day or two. But after that, it's really going to 
peter off if we were able to understand that if our mind understood that then we'd make decisions differently to what we really do because we don't and our minds adapt to it and the idea here is that it's called impact bias so it's the tendency to overestimate the emotional impact of a future event both in terms of intensity and its duration so they did studies where they asked people how happy do you think you would be if you either got higher than expected on a test, exactly as expected on a test, or lower than expected on a test. And each of them obviously say, oh, you know, if I got higher than expected, I'd be super happy. If I got lower than expected, I'd be really unhappy. And then whatever for the middle. And the reality is that for all of the groups, in terms of what their actual happiness was, it was all pretty much the same, right? So we're very bad at um, predicting how happy we're gonna be and the impact that different things will have on it so you know not to go into too much jargon but there is an interesting question around like why do we why are we so bad at predicting how we will feel and so there's two concepts here the first is called focalism which is the tendency to think that to think just about one event and so we forget about all the other things that happen so we might be super focused on this one exam but we're really not focused that we're not thinking about the fact that well after the exam is done i've also got you know rugby training and um you know, a party I'm going to the weekend and there's a movie I really want to watch and all these other things. We literally just think that this one event, which is the exam, is going to determine our happiness. Over, like that's the only thing that determines our happiness over the time period after that exam, which of course is not true. So we, focalism is where we just think about one of the, one event and our minds do that. And the second one is this concept, which is really, really interesting, this concept of immune neglect. And this is essentially the unawareness of our psychological immune system so psychologically we have an incredible ability to adapt to and cope with negative effects but we, we don't re we don't realize that we have this ability so you know how do these things impact us is that when the the good stuff is often not going to make us as happy as we think um so we're constantly seeking out more and more good stuff to try and like top up that feeling. Um, but then also we don't realize how capable we are of dealing with bad things and bad emotions. So we, we tend not to take on some things that might have a risk of leading to you know, bad outcomes, but actually we're way more resilient than we think we are because of this idea of our psychological immune system. So, these are the four things that kind of lead to some of our miswanting. The whole idea behind this course, I recommend to go and do it. It's a free course. You can look it up on Coursera. It's called The Science of Wellbeing, run by Laurie Santos. And it kind of breaks down a lot of this, these ideas of how do we make better decisions around what it is that we want to, to do in our lives that will kind of increase the likelihood that they will lead to um, happiness. And if you're in any way interested in you know, behavioral psychology and social psychology and why do we actually make these decisions, um, it's really, really fascinating. I'm, you know, I've talked about this now for probably 20 minutes or so. So I love nerding out on this kind of thing and um, I'd recommend the course. So I hope you enjoyed this little section about the science of well-being and some of the interesting psychological reasons behind why we make decisions when it comes to uh, our lives and how they impact our happiness. So in the notes app on my phone, I've got this section 
which is called quotes. And it's basically made up of these different quotes that I come across anywhere in my life. So in a book, in something that I see at the world, in song lyrics, wherever, just something that I think is cool and I think is meaningful. And, and I write it down there. And so I wanted to try out this new section of the podcast where I read out a couple of those quotes and they'll be the ones that are more relative to the, uh, or relevant to the topic of this podcast and the conversation, which is all about finding meaning and purpose and building a life that you love. And so the first one I have for today is from a book called The Prophet. And what is it to work with love? It is to weave the cloth with threads drawn from your heart, even as if your beloved were to wear that cloth. It is to build a house with affection, even as if your beloved were to dwell in that house. It is to sow seeds with tenderness and reap the harvest with joy, even as if your beloved were to eat the fruit. For if you bake bread with indifference, you bake a bit of bread that feeds but half man's hunger. And if you grudge the crushing of the grapes, your grudge distills a poison in the wine. And if you sing those angels and love not the singing, you muffle man's ears to the voices of the day and the voices of the night. And the second quote I have is from a wonderful book that, to be honest with you, I haven't finished because it's fucking so, so long. <laughs> what I have read, I did enjoy. And the book is called Anna Karenina. And this is a quote. He could find no answer except life's usual answer to the most complex and insoluble questions. That answer is live in the needs of the day. That is find forgetfulness. So that's all for today's episode of the Two Roads podcast. If you enjoyed it, let me know. Give me a message. Give me one of those writing things on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever else it is. Um, I have three interviews lined up for next week. So this is the last solo episode for a while. We'll be back to interviewing some really good guests um, from episode 24 on next week onwards. We've got actually some repeat guests, some people who've come back, some fan favorites, and some of the most listened episodes that we've had so far. We're going to come back. We're going to get those people back on and have a chat with them and get an update on how their life's been going. And uh, also some really new guests from interesting fields that I'm really excited to talk to. But apart from that, I will see you next week for episode 24, I think, 24, episode 24 of the Two Rose Podcast. Shout out to all the motherfuckers that don't give a fuck about us. Now we hear it. Yeah,